family. I woke up this morning, I get to church pretty early on Sunday mornings, and I got here and was just praying over motives, because I would love for us to cultivate the kind of atmosphere in our church where the motives of everyone who steps into a worship experience here is that we will experience God, and that God, there'll be a, a fresh word from the Lord, and that God will break into the lives of people, and break chains, and pave ways for people, and save people, and and for every motive this morning that stepped into this space, like wanting to see and experience God do something new and something, something great among us, I, I praise God for it, but I also know a lot of us stepped into this worship experience today and our motives weren't quite like that. For some of us, it's like, I did everything I could just to get here, to get my kids here. For whatever motive or intention brought you into this worship space, either in person or online, we praise God for you and I ask for God to take a step to you today. I hope that you were at a place in your life this morning that you were ready to take a step to God. And for those of you who are too weary to do that, that you'll know God has taken a step to you. So I'm thankful for this time with you. I'm also able to let you know that this morning, David and Courtney Long stepped up and said we were $16,000 short of reaching our missions goal, and now just a few minutes have gone by, and now we're only $3,000 short of reaching our goal. So we've had a contribution come in, and I don't know if this is... I love Courtney's little line of, hey, we like money that jingles, but we really like money that folds. And I, which is a line I'm going to definitely use from here on out. And I don't know if it was that or if some of you saw that the preacher is wearing a jacket today and you're like, Jesus is coming back and I better get my ducks in a row and we better hit this mission. We don't want God saying, why did you not make the goal, right? So uh, I, look, I, I woke up this morning. I put, a, I put this little coat on, all right? I didn't lose a bet. No one died, all right? It was just 29 degrees outside, and this is what I did, all right? So uh, grateful to be with you. Friday was Veterans Day. Just a show of hands to our veterans in the room. A show of hands to the men and women who have served. We thank God for you. Amen. I thank you uh, for your service and also the sacrifice, both for our country, but I know for, for some of you, the sacrifices that in your service, it took you away from family, friends, and your community for maybe days, weeks, and we're not, probably not even talking days, weeks, months, and I know for some of you, years, so, so thank you for that. Uh, I came across a podcast this past week that Brene Brown was having a conversation on her podcast and they brought up the Navy SEALs. And one question I was asked on the podcast is, what are the people who make it, a, like, to, who like graduate and they make it to become a, a SEAL? And, and I think most of you know, like, I mean, Navy SEALs are some of the best of the best. I mean, crazy stuff they can do, right? Holding breath over five minutes underwater, running sprints, you know, where they don't have to slow down for over 10 minutes. I mean, these people, they're crazy, right? And the question was, like, what is it? Like, who are the people who make it? And the response was, I'm not sure I can tell you, like, like the exact characteristics of those who do, but I can tell you those who don't. And usually those college athletes who perform really well on a field or on a court, usually they, they aren't the ones who make it. And a lot of times it's not those young, inspiring leaders who can, you know, form structures and do things with systems and create teams and delegate. Those aren't the people who make it. And usually the people who make it, it's not those who have like lived in the gym and in a CrossFit community for, for months and maybe years who, you know, muscles from head to toe and tattoos from head to toe. Usually they don't make it. But then what the guy said was this. What people have in common who become a seal is that when they are physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted, they are able to dig down deep and to find whatever it takes to help the person next to them. And sometimes that could be the skinniest, scrawniest dudes who come through training. 
But what they all have in common is when they're physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted, they're able to dig down deep and to find whatever it takes inside of them to help the person next to them. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's great for seals, but that, isn't that the church? Like, that's who we are. That when we are physically and emotionally exhausted, we dig down deep and we find the faith that God has given us that we're not just looking out for ourselves, but we are looking out for the person next to us. And I see this played out in the life of this church every single week. The language in the book of Philippians, which we're in week 10 of 11 weeks of studying the book of Philippians, the language in the phrase that shows up multiple times in Philippians is that we share in the gospel together. And sometimes sharing in the gospel is about financial blessings. It's financial offerings. Sometimes it's encouragement that we give one another. It's partnership in the kingdom of God. And I see this played out in the life of this church every week, where I know Wednesdays, for many of us, Wednesdays is the longest day of the week and you're physically and you're emotionally exhausted, yet you still show up to teach in classrooms or to go down the street a couple of times a month to feed some of our homeless friends. And some of you, I know you have weeks where you're physically and emotionally exhausted, yet you show up on a Friday night or Saturday morning for the grocery giveaway to make sure over 100 people in our community are fed. And the way you take care of one another, and I know in a season right now where inflation is high and costs are crazy and, and there's a cloud kind of hovering over some of our finances, and, and yet there's still weekly offerings you give and a missions offering you give. And last week for there to be a red tub and agape Christmas box effort and for you to participate in that, to see red tubs moving around this campus last week, it was amazing. And I know some of you got in your cars and, and you thought your spouse was going to get one red tub and they got three. Or you thought they were going to get one Christmas box and they got five. And you're like, there goes my Christmas bonus. But to see this church step up and partner with each, 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 each other, how we live out life of the good news of Jesus, I, I just give thanks for it. So today we're on week 10 of week 11. So we're in Philippians chapter 4. And, and Paul offers up some final words in Philippians 4. And throughout the Bible, you have times where people offer up final words. You have Jacob, who had 12 sons at the very end of Genesis. And Genesis ends with Jacob, who takes time to speak a word over all, all 12, all dozen of his sons. And he speaks words over them, and then his final word is where he wants to be buried. You have David in 1 Kings chapter 2. He's offering up final words to Solomon. He's on his deathbed. And what he says in 1 Kings 2, 2 is, uh, it's time for you to stand up and be a man. I guess his final words to Solomon. You have Jesus who offers up final words where his final words are uh, prayers to God. His final words are forgiveness for those who put him on a cross. And then in the Gospel of John, his final words is that John is standing next to Jesus' mother and he has a blessing on how they need to take care of each other in the days to come. And I'm sure you've had moments in your life where you have been next to people who have been on their deathbed and they were offering up final words too. And I think of some of these moments I've had with people in the church with Pat Simon or Don Litton before he passed. And Kip, I remember you and I were called in to meet with Trisha Cox. She was just about to die, and she said she wanted to meet with us to talk about the funeral. But when we got in there, we talked for like 60 seconds about the funeral. She just wanted some time with Kip and myself. And she was grasping for, for breath. It was hard for her to even have the air to breathe so she could speak words, yet she became a prophet of God that day. And what she was interested in telling Kip and myself, it wasn't about like what restaurants to eat at or what movies to watch or it was nothing like that. What she had to tell us was here's some challenges in our lives to be men, and, to be men of God, how to treat our wives and our kids with care and how, how to be men of integrity and 
how to have a life of persevering with Jesus. So some people think Paul, I mean, we definitely know Paul writes Philippians from a prison cell. And he's probably writing Philippians, maybe thinking, like, I, I think I may get out of here. I think God may deliver, deliver me, but this may be it for me. So he's offering up words. And today I'm just going to preach on two verses. That's it. In Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul uses the word finally. Like, all right, I've, I've talked now for almost 80 verses, 85 verses, and now finally. And then there's the word whatever, which is a word maybe you hear in a negative kind of way in your home all the time, like whatever. It's a word whatever. It's a Greek word hosa, and this is going to show up eight different times in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And Paul says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So if you're taking notes, I want you to think about this phrase this morning. Begin with the end in mind. Got it? Begin with the end in mind. And let me show you how Paul does this in Philippians. So you have the Christ hymn, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, one of the oldest ancient hymns that we have. And in it, he talks about the nature of Jesus, and then it ends in verses 9 through 11. It ends like this. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like Paul paints a picture of here's what the end is like and then the very next verse, and I don't have this on the screen, but the very next verse in verse 12 is about how you need to work out your salvation now. It's something for you to do now. So Paul paints a picture of the end not for you just to sit down and look at what it may be like in the end, but that the end may inspire how you live today. Begin with the end in mind. So sometimes how I, want to, how I try to encourage people is there's a, a decision you need to make in your life. Now, play this out to the end. Play this out five years down the road or ten years down the road. And if you make this decision, will you like who you are in ten years from now? And not only that, how will people like who you are five to ten years from now? Sometimes when I'm with people, who are struggling with some form of addiction or maybe their marriage is struggling and there's a temptation where flirtatiousness is like led or maybe a relationship is on the brink of crossing the lines with someone else, what I will encourage people is play this scenario out five to ten years down the road and will you like who you are and not only that, how many people will be damaged by a decision you may make because you're not playing this out to the end. Is this making sense? Begin with the end in mind. So what Paul does in verses 8 and 9 is he's painting these virtues or these values, these, characteristics, these, these character traits, these personality traits. Look, here is who you want to be. Here's who you need to be. And he plays it out to the end. Now, practice these things. Right? Think about these things. Meditate on these things. So there are two uh, leaders throughout America. They do a lot of leadership events uh, with organizations and corporations all over, the, all over America. And a few years ago, they were leading this event with 1,600 managers. So 1,600 managers of a lot of different organizations throughout the U.S., and the question they asked them was, 
who, like when it comes to the leaders you want to follow, when it comes to leaders in your organization, so your bosses, your employers, what is the character or personality traits you want to see in them? So that was a question asked of 1,600 managers. And over 200 responses came in. And there were a few that rose to the top. And the one that rose to the very top was the number one thing they wanted in, in their leaders was integrity. And right behind that was someone who was truthful and trustworthy. And the, the next two years, they built on that study. They built on that research. So they led some executive groups for two years. And in those executive groups, there were 2,500 top-level managers of organizations throughout the United States. And they asked them the same question. What are the character traits or personality traits you want to see in your leader? In other words, what do you want in a leader that is worth following? And the response was, the number one response was honesty. And that showed up more than competence, more than intelligence, more than creativity. So thousands of managers were asked, what is it you value more than anything else? And their responses is, we value to have a, like we want a leader who has integrity and we want a leader who is honest more than anything else. Now, I think we all can agree that we live in a time where it seems like character and integrity just isn't what it used to be. And it's easy to point fingers at politicians, right? Like, they don't have character. But look at, look at people, look at leaders in the church where you have seen moral failures happen across our country and across the globe. Like in every organization, what my friend Randy Harris says is if the price is right, everyone's integrity is for sale. Ruth Haley Barton says this. She says, we set young leaders up for a fall if we encourage them to envision what they can do before they consider the kind of person they should be. Right? And this, this, you, it's true, even if it's not just for young leaders. Like you could say that we set leaders up or we just set people up for failure if we encourage them to envision what they can do before they consider the kind of person they should be. This is why a couple of years ago, in 2020, the leaders of this church, we went public with eight core values that we rally around, we pray through right now our leadership team. There's seven of us who meet every single week and we're praying through, spending about 20 or 30 minutes every week thinking and praying through these core values. Because we believe, if you look at all eight of these, from anticipating the movement of God to holding up discipleship to having a heart for lost people that we care about those who are physically and mentally uh, mentally ill, where the healing needs to happen in their lives, standing with the marginalized, a value about reconciliation, a value about striving to give the next generation a compelling story to live into, and a value about restoration movement. Like, like we think if we try to, to step into the, these eight values, these eight virtues, we think we'll like who we are. Like we think we'll know God's heart better. We think people who are on the outside when they see how we behave and who we are, we think they'll like who we are. We think we'll be better neighbors and better friends and co-workers and husbands and wives and dads and moms because we're stepping into these values. So I meet with my friend Randy Harris. He's a friend and mentor. He's been meeting with a group of preachers now every year. And I told you last week, two weeks ago, I was in Utah with uh, eight of us. Randy made nine. This group of preachers used to be 16. We've had a few who are no longer in ministry. One who no longer claims faith in Christ. Two who had affairs, moral failures. They uh, were no, are no longer ministers in churches. So our group is down to eight. And every year, Randy gives us the same speech. This year, we're having a prayer time. And I say, Randy, we want to give you a few minutes. 
for you to take that group of eight of us and you challenge us any way you want to challenge us. And one of the first things he said is, I'm gonna, just going to remind you, if the price is right, everyone's integrity is for sale. If the price is right, everyone's character is for sale. For all of us, for most of us, <clears throat> there are going to come moments in our lives when for the sake of progress, whether it's progress in a job, progress in life, progress in relationships, that the day will come when progress seems to call for a compromise of character. Just to cut the corners, just a little bit, just to cheat the system, just a little bit. And living with character is not about doing the right thing to avoid consequences. Living with character is doing the right thing because it's the right thing. So I want to stay and kind of preach Philippians 4, 8 and 9, but I want to go somewhere else just for a moment because I think in Daniel chapter 3 you have a, an example of one of the greatest moments of integrity in the entire Bible where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had gone into Jerusalem and took over the city. And they, and they didn't just go in and like wipe people out and kill everyone. They took them captive. And those they took captive, they actually promoted into some leadership positions back in Babylon for being Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then the day came where King Nebuchadnezzar set up a statue of himself and the, the, the command was given to all the people in the land, you need to come together and when you hear a sound, you get down on your faces, you bow down to me and you worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. And in the story, it says that the king actually like called them in. Like he... Like, it's like he knew them by name. So he's having a conversation with them like, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to die. And it's like, I don't really want to kill you, but I've also made a command. Like, everyone has to bow down and worship me. And if, you were Shad if we were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know what would have been easy to do? For us to have said, hey, you know what? We're going to go and we're going to bow down, but we're going to make sure our hearts aren't in it. Like, we're going to bow down. And we may even say the things that we're supposed to say, but we're really going to offer them up to God and not to Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, it's actually going to be worship to God as we do it. But it's like their thinking was, in this moment, if we cheat on God in this moment, where else are we going to cheat on God in life? Like if, just for a, if we momentarily and temporarily abandon some integrity to keep us alive, where else in life? Are we going to momentarily or temporarily abandon integrity for the sake of life? So for progress in some of our lives, for there to be progress sometimes in a job, like, or, or to get a job, or in life or in relationships, like the call, the compromise character is always going to be knocking on our door. Because if we don't do something, like will we get the job? Will we get a promotion? Will we get a raise? Will a boss like us? How will the bills get paid? What's the bottom line? And in relationships, if we don't do this or don't do that, will we be loved or will we be accepted? And if the price is right, integrity is always for sale. So the Daniel chapter 3 ends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego making this statement. They replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Because if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. One of the greatest moments of integrity in the entire Bible. 
All right, so fast forward about 650 years. And Paul's writing to a church in the city of Philippi, a city of around 10,000 people, but it was a city that was prominent. It was a Roman city. So let me just show you a few pictures because I, I got a chance, I had a chance to go to ancient Philippi last summer, the summer of 2021. I flew over to spend a few days with our missionary Dino and we went around to a few places and they took me to ancient Philippi. And in ancient Philippi, we got out of the car and it was 110 degrees outside. And Dino said, you go enjoy ancient Philippi. I'm going to stay in the shade, all right? There's not much shade there, but... That was it. You go out and you go see stuff. Take your time. I'll see you in a little while. And the first place you see when you walk into the town is you see the big theater. It would have held thousands of people. Because this was a major road going through Philippi. And like they wanted people to know when you come here, there's entertainment, there's hospitality. We would love for you to stay for a couple of days. So this is a theater where they would do all kind of dramatic productions and theater. And they could even put water in there and, and, and just have all kind of productions for folks. And then it's hard for you to make out exactly what I have in the photo if you go to the next one. But this, uh, uh, this right here was just a, a sign that this was a major road that went through Philippi. If you go to the next image, like this is the marketplace, the Agora. So this in the next image, what you see there is this huge area that basically would have been like a combination of Wolf Chase Mall and Beale Street with some kind of religious affiliation all mixed into one, placed, on, a, placed on, a, on land about the size of what our campus is on right now. This is where you would come to shop. This is where you would come to connect to the gods. This is where you would come to have fun with your friends. This was a large area in the center of town. And then what moved my heart, and I know we released a baptism video earlier this year that's on our website. And I talk about this in the baptism video. But there, I, I found a baptistry. Now this wasn't a baptistry that Paul would have used. But 100 or 200 years after Paul wrote this letter, there was a church in Philippi and there was a baptistry. And you can see the baptistry and the area that I've been talking about, the marketplace, is just on the other side of that. Lydia's house where the church would have met at the end of Acts 16 would have been about, we don't know where it was, but everything was within close proximity of the large marketplace. And it was like you'd be baptized a couple of blocks away from all this noise and commotion. And it's like, it's like baptism was asking people, look, right across the street are things that can compromise your character, things that can impact your life, but what you're engaging in in the moments of baptism, in the moment of baptism, this can impact your life in a way that will help you impact the lives of people just across the street. And if you don't take seriously what that moment does for you for the rest of your life, what happens across the street is going to end up impacting your life. They're going to be defining moments in our lives when our character is tested. Right? This, ha this happens, maybe not daily, but they're going to be defining moments in our lives when our character is tested. And how good are you at cramming at tests? I was pretty good at cramming at tests. I was a good test taker because I have a photographic memory. The reason I can usually make it through sermons without looking at notes, it's not because I memorize sermons, is I have a photographic memory. So I put sermon notes on one page, usually nine-point font. 
And I just draw circles around and I, I can just remember in my mind where certain things are on a piece of paper. And if I skip a part, I can rearrange things in my head in the sermon moment and make it through all the content. Now I'll throw the crow's nest off like crazy up there because they're trying to find how I'm trying to rearrange things. But this made it, I was a really good test taker because of this. I remember cramming for a test one time for philosophy for my good friend Randy Harris. This is our final. This is like 50% of our grade. Crammed for it all night long, showed up for a test. Randy walked in and Randy said, hey, I just want everybody to know that I took the test I'm giving you right now before I came down here and I made an 81. The professor made an 81 on the test he was about to give us. So he said, you're going to get a big curve. So we ended up like all of us passed. I was in a Hebrew class, third semester Hebrew with a final exam and the professor who gave the exam went somewhere else on the day of the exam, so he sent one, someone else to give us the exam, and the exam was on books of the Old Testament that we had not studied at all. So me and my buddies were just trying to like recite verses in the Old Testament that we had memorized, hoping that would be enough for the teacher to give us grace, and we're just right now like the Lord is my shepherd, even though, and it probably doesn't say that. Or it, Exodus, like the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love like maybe this maybe this will be helpful and, and it was I'm sure you've crammed for tests before but when it comes to character this is a test you cannot cram for it's not like your character is tested and all of a sudden you can you can hope character is there it's the character has to be cultivated and developed it has to be chosen this is why Paul lists these virtues and then says think and meditate on these things and then practice them, like cultivate them. And the way I've explained it before is it takes hours to put together a Lego set. Hours. And all it takes to destroy it is for a toddler to get loose in the house, right? For a dog to go crazy. For somebody to slip and hit the table. And in life, like we know this, sometimes it's just a word you speak. One thing you do, one mistake you made that can, that can damage a reputation you had spent decades to build. So I think some of you may be listening to me today and you just need the challenge. Right now in your life, it is never too late for you to make decisions to build and cultivate character in your life. And God loves to do that. And for some of you may be listening and thinking, I wish I would have heard a sermon like this. 10 years ago, 30 years ago, two days ago. And maybe what you need to know is that God loves rebuilding character in people. That though there are mistakes sometimes we make that will go with us for a lifetime, it does not have to define you for a lifetime. So here for the next few minutes, we're going to step into moments that we create in our worship services where we tried to hold together a few things. And all these things, it's trying to give God a chance, God some space to work on us. So over the next few minutes, we're, there's six tables, and you're invited to move the tables. And I know when it comes to communion, some of you love to have communion where you are just in your place with God. You can sit in a pew with God, and we give that space to you over the next few minutes. And some of you love to maybe huddle up with friends and to have conversations about what communion means, and we want to give that space for you in this time too. And some of us need a moment to go to others for prayer, 
especially on a day like this, asking God to cultivate our character, to build our character, to rebuild character. So today, over here to my right, Lever Niece is going to be by that exit sign. Laura Moore is going to be over here to my left. I believe Doyle Bradster, one of our elders, is in the back. And up front will be Tommy Collier. And I'll be over here to my left to receive you. One, one story that came just a, a couple months ago is we have a, a, someone in this church whose dad is with us almost every Sunday on live stream. They live in another city, and they made the request that, that during communion, would this child of theirs come up front to receive communion so the dad could see them, so that there could be a connection from hundreds of miles away of how the bread and the cup holds people together. And as we move the tables in a moment, there's a really good chance you're going to bump shoulders or walk by somebody and you don't know their name and nothing about them. But the reason you move to and from a table is the bread and the cup which holds us together in these relationships that will hold us together for eternity. So as we take the bread and the cup and pray today, I want to give you two things to think about. One is this, that we can thank Jesus for his character. That in moments when it could have been compromised, he chose to do what is right because it was the right thing to do. And in this moment, as we take the bread and the cup and we reflect it, we will ask God to build that same character in us. So can we bow our heads and close our eyes? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And Jesus, now in this meal, we thank you for all you are, for you choosing what is right even when it was hard. And in this moment, as we take the bread and the cup, God, I pray almost every day of my life, not just for my own children, but for this church, that you will protect our hearts, but I'll always follow that statement up, that you will cultivate the hearts you protect. So do that in this moment. Through Christ we pray. Amen.